Hey folks, welcome back. This is Dr. Scott at LA Not So Confidential, and I'm here with my bestie. Dr. Shiloh. Hey, we are at our respective residences once again. Doing our physical distancing of what, 45 miles? <laughs> yeah, yeah, around there, around there. <laughs> About 40. We're, we're taking it quite seriously. Exactly. Even though I do get to look at your face this time, we've rigged up our FaceTime and we we're doing our recording. It yeah, it's, it's fun. It's yeah, good. That's cool. I have to have something to react to or else I don't know if my jokes are working because usually I'll say something totally gross or dumbass and you'll just like roll your eyes and I need, I need that feedback. The feedback. Yeah, you. <laughs> or I'm laughing all the time, but I do it like just my face. So I'm not constantly <laughs> laughing on the podcast. And... Oh, I wish I was that funny. <laughs> hey, so we have a really great episode for you today. And so to lead into our topic for today, we are going to be talking about con artists. And I want to give a special shout out to Michelle Kazuba for this idea. So, um, and just, you know, for Dr. Tim and Dr. Lance over at Missing Maura Murray, that is how you say her last name. They have her on their podcast um, every once in a while. She's a criminal prosecutor, and they always screw around with how to say her <laughs> last name. So I just want to school them on that real quick. Um, but she is a board member for the private investigations for the missing organization that they're also board members on and does a lot of great work with them and writing on their blog. But um, I was consulting with her the other day on actually a con man case that she has. And I was like, here we go, Scott, want to do this topic. <laughs> and you were all in. So she was really asking, like she's saying, I want to get into this guy's head. What, you know, how do these people operate? And here we are off and running with episode yeah. 42. So yeah. this sounds so silly. I feel like every, every time I go, oh my God, I didn't know that. To me, conman is just such a part of our vernacular. I had no idea that it stood for confidence. Oh, you didn't know? I no, I I just the word con and um, what a con is and getting someone o something over on someone. I just never really gave any thought to where that came from. I you know, interestingly enough, I've known that for a long time. Not so much about certainly what we're going to be talking today about, but because I think. From the South. I mean, I remember my mother talking about, you know, some reprehensible person that had come into our neighborhood and she was like, oh, he's a confidence man. And I mean, I remember that as a, as a kid hearing that and going, oh, OK, that's what that's a short for. OK. Yeah. So it, meaning that they gain your confidence to be able to pull one over on you. But I also see it as they are just like oozing of their own confidence because well, that's such a thread that you see is these are just incredibly confident people, at least on the outside, to be able to win your trust. Well, and, and, and some of the, the information we'll be providing by different authors and researchers, they all say that confidence is required on both sides. If you don't walk into it like you're owning the situation, there's no way that they can trust it. So it's it's both oh, sides. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. Some other names for con men: imposters, grifters, swindlers. What's Hucksters that? is one. Snake oil salesman is one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this this covers a huge gamut. So from 
your street cons to what's the card game? Three card ante or an- three, three card, card Monty. Monty. ante? Where did I go that? Right, ante, <laughs> ante <Any> up. <laughs> um, to full on pyramid schemes. This is all the the variant that we're talking about today. Have you ever been conned? I thought we would talk about like if we've ever been. Conned. I I was. Um, I had two interactions with con men. One was a like a professional ex convict who had done pris- federal prison time, and then when he came out, and I I've been trying to find his name. It's been literally decades since I interacted with him, but this guy had several books. And he did the talk show circuit when there were just tons and tons of daytime talk shows. Like he had done Donahue and Oprah and a bunch of local ones here in Los Angeles. And he was a skinny little weaselly looking guy. He he had run a lot of successful cons all his life. And then he decided he wanted to be an actor. And he was trying to con me as a casting director like you know, just get me in the room, just get me in the room, I'll get the part. And I kept having to try and explain to him, like, that's not how it works. You, yes, Uh you can act, you have an act, you've been acting for your entire life, the same as acting for camera. And I, you know, he just didn't, he didn't get it. And he, I kind of disappeared off the map for me. But the big one was a roommate that I had uh, years ago, when I first transitioned out of performing into becoming uh, an agent's assistant at William Morris. And it was, you know, back then, as it is now, being an agent's assistant is incredibly challenging and no money and really long hours and working with some very spirited and colorful personalities as your bosses is the the way I'll, I'll put it. And I had a roommate who moved in uh, with his boyfriend. So I was, completely like I needed a roommate immediately. And this guy that I had met online in the early days of message boards and AOL chat rooms. And, you know, we hooked up for coffee and I was like, oh, wow, he's really smart. He's really funny. And it was just all uh, a huge, huge con. And what's interesting is that I had a party and several of my friends the next day were like, that guy's a complete fake. Like they just, they, they nailed it immediately. And I, I was like, yeah, but I need a roommate. And any long story short, he ended up leaving me with a, gosh, like an $8,000 phone bill. He was using uh, oh his, God. he was using the 900 lines, which were like, you know, $3 a minute to run cons on people. And he was pretty successful until, you know, he wasn't paying the bill. And I, you know, I had to, I, I can't tell you how I got him out of the apartment because it would really tarnish my reputation. <laughs> but um no worries. Yeah, I had to, I was let me just say I was a big gym goer back then. I was a big guy at that time. Ooh. Um all right. So but I but I ended up having to pay uh ended up having to pay like like five thousand dollars to the phone company. And I had like, you know, an attorney, like it the phone company wasn't having any of it. They wouldn't believe it. it's like the phone is in your name, you're paying it. So yeah. Yeah. He's still alive. Yeah. Anybody, wow. if we have any listeners in Oklahoma City, reach out to us. We might be able to track <laughs> him down for an interview. That'd be fun. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that might be. What about you? Um, so, yeah, one that I that I know of and in and I know in a lot of the reading that I did for this, the perfect con is really the one you never know about. <laughs> the victim never knows about. So I can only say that I know of and I was like. 19 years old, working at the mall. I worked at 
a Western wear clothing store called Howard and Phil's. <laughs> I kind of conned my way into that job, actually. <laughs> anyway, that's another story, too. I remember one probably like weekday morning, I was working there and it was me and just one other salesperson. And a guy came in and essentially asked us for change and said, you know, I, it was something like, um, I have this hundred dollar bill, but I want two fifties because I'm going to put one in my daughter's birthday card or something like that. And, you know, we're stupid and we're like, oh, that's so cute. And we want to be helpful. And, you know, we thought it was so cute that he's going to do this nice thing. And uh, we make change. Then at the end of the night, of course, when we go to pull out where all the big bills are, there's a $10 bill in there. And we're like, oh, crap. What the? How did this happen? So basically, he gave us a $10 bill and we gave him two fifties. Um, So it must have been some sleight of hand, crazy magic wow. trick. I don't know. But I just remember feeling so stupid that I had been snowed and that I fell for that. And, you know, of course, our manager was great. It was like, this happens. You'll never do it again because you'll smell it coming from a mile away. But um, just, yeah, really feeling dumb afterwards. That's got to be a common um, one, too. You know, people are just I'm making, sure. maybe it's not as easy as it used to be, but I bet that was a really common one. Yeah, I think so. And especially, you know, these these all, we're, we're talking here about really the end of the con is getting a financial benefit out of it. Um, and, you know, again, whether it's sort of these, these street hustles or, you know, someone like this or a salesman. So like a common salesman example of a con man would be, and again, like this isn't very um, contemporary with this example, but it would be that someone would come to your door and say that they would change your light bulbs for you for five bucks and they would all have new light bulbs, right? So they change your light bulbs. You can see they're taking out bulbs and they're putting them in and they're working and you pay them $5. Well, then they go to the neighbor's house to do the same thing. And what are they doing? They're taking your light bulbs that they just changed and putting them in the neighbor's house. So they're doing that. Basically, you have to buy one set of light bulbs at the beginning and then they're making five bucks each time they go from house to house using the previous neighbor's light bulbs. Um, so that's an example of like a salesman type of con all the way up until the romantic cons, yeah. you know, the, the fishing, the romantic fishing. Um, it, I'm, I'm sure we've talked about it here and we've played her trailer because we were on her podcast quite a bit, but the podcast fool me twice with our friend, Jules Hannaford is all about, you know, romantic um, cons and, being the the con person is benefiting financially from this. So it's in the end, it's always about a financial benefit. Yeah, especially Jules is such a great example of a long con. And, you know, she's so clearly a very smart woman. And, you know, there that's sort of something that you get throughout the it's a really slow burn podcast. I love the way that it's very it's paced so beautifully and you know but by the second episode you're going i mean you feel like you're going oh jules don't do it jules don't just don't right. but right. part of what we're going to be talking about is the idea of this is how all of us become victims is that 
we'll question ourselves, but then we'll minimize it. Like, no, I'm not being that stupid. Oh, no, they're not that mean. I mean, you might question, but then their confidence being exuded and they're taking control of the situation constantly redirects all of your safety mechanisms. Yeah. So like you were saying, when your friends met this roommate of yours, they're like, oh, my God, that that's yeah. not this yeah. real person. And they could see it so clearly. But that's really the interesting phenomenon in the victims of these is how how your mind is working. And, and we'll get to some of that. So some famous con men, I think, or con people, con artists, right off the top of my head, I always think of Charles Ponzi, because the Ponzi scheme had to come from somewhere. Um, so Charles Ponzi was an Italian immigrant. And he went to college in Rome, came to the US, right, you know, after college age, and he had like, $2.50 in his pocket and arrived in Boston, worked at a restaurant where he was fired for shortchanging some customers. So he was already trying to make a quick buck at the beginning. And then he ended up getting a job at a bank, but was actually left with a bunch of the bank's money troubles when the owner got in trouble and just like disappeared because the IRS or whomever was after him. And so he kind of got stuck with a bunch of someone else's problems, but started then at that point learning how to pass bad checks. And he did get caught and he spent a number of years in prison. But once he got out, I guess, you know, he had either picked up a few tips in prison or given it some thought and didn't ever want to go back and had perfected a scheme. And really he would, he decided to have people or trick people, sell people into investing in postal reply coupons that he told them would promise a 50% return when he was actually making like a 400% return. And as long as money was coming in, he was like just ahead the fact was he really didn't have any income. And that's what these Ponzi or pyramid schemes are like. There's no real stream of income coming in. You're using what the new investor is bringing to either supplement your own income. Or, or pay yeah, off recycling it, basically. Yeah. Right. Pay off the, the, the investors ahead of them. But he was eventually caught. He lost millions of dollars for people. And he was sent to prison and escaped once, but he was sent back and eventually deported to Italy where he ended up dying a poor old man in 1949. But yeah, that's where, where Ponzi scheme comes from, is from Charles Ponzi. Um, Frank Abagnale, we're going to talk about a little bit later because he's quite famous. But if you guys know from the book and the movie and the Broadway musical, catch me if you can. <laughs> I think that's twice in a row we've yeah. mentioned Broadway <laughs> in episodes. The movie with Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. He is uh, quite infamous here in the United States and has a, has a very interesting story that we'll get to. Any other more... Um, historical, less contemporary that you have? Yeah, the list? ones that I found were were really fascinating. One, because in, as far as men, we have some women that I think are really, really fascinating that we get to at the end because the women seem to, to follow a certain pathway that to me is fascinating. But there was a guy in 18, what is it, 18, no, 1920, because he was born in 1890. This guy was quote-unquote, Count Victor Lustig. And nobody really knows 
about his real background, although he was fluent in several languages and clearly pretty well educated. But basically, he I didn't realize this until we started researching it. But you always hear in like sitcoms or movies about, you know, big, stupid cons that you would think, well, who would fall for that? Who would buy the Brooklyn Bridge? You know, that's that's like a big sort of sitcom setup. Well, this was who would buy the Eiffel Tower? Well, I didn't realize this until researching, but the Eiffel Tower was meant to be a temporary structure. I didn't realize it was not meant to be permanent. So there was sort of this. It was a decade after the sort of lifespan of the tower was supposed to exist. Like nobody really expected it to go beyond what it was built for. It lasted 10 years. They were like, okay, then there's all this controversy about what it's being done. Well, Victor Lustig took the opportunity to very quietly build a persona for himself as the person who was for the French government seeking out scrap metal buyers to buy uh, the Eiffel Tower. But he was so clever because he went to these different different dealers and he was saying, hey, I'm not really supposed to be talking to anybody about this. It's a, supposed to be a very quiet deal. You know, we got to keep this on the down low. But, you know, if you want to actually get in on the bidding, I mean, I could probably make sure you have a place at the table. So he got one particular um, scrap metal company to pay him an enormous, enormous amount of money. What was $70,000 at the time, which would be probably close to a quarter of a million, just to get that guy a seat at the table. And then, of course, and some other money he managed to get. And I think he did it on a smaller scale to a couple of others. And then he took off. So he made a huge amount of money for selling the Eiffel Tower. And then one of his more successful scams that he got away with also was traveling back and forth from the U.S. to Europe on ocean liners and selling a box that would make money. And it was supposedly like a like a version of a Polaroid machine. And it like made noises and you cranked in a hundred dollar bill and then you would let it sit for a while and crank it again and two or three hundred dollar bills would come out with it. And people were so dumb, they fell for it, not realizing that he had just built in this roller system. There'd already be like five or six hundred dollar bills in there. And then he would sell them for forty six thousand dollars a piece, like because all these idiot rich people would go, oh, I can just print my own money. No one will know. This is my own little puppet machine. So he got away with that for a long time. A not so well-known but modern story is a guy named David Pampton. And this was back in the late 80s in the time of Studio 54. He's a very handsome African-American male that was, he's been immortalized by Will Smith in the movie uh, Six Degrees of Separation. And there was a stage play that was really amazing. The movie's really amazing. But it's about this guy who is from a low-income family, and he ends up hooking up with a relatively upscale, wealthy white guy uh, for, you know, a casual sexual encounter. And the guy teaches him, look, you know, nobody's going to take you seriously trying to get into the clubs unless you learn how to speak. And he starts teaching him how to get rid of his, you know, sort of urban accent, as it were. And he cons an entire group of rich people, including a very wealthy family, into thinking that he was the son of Sidney Poitier, the very famous, famous actor. And the the con goes on for years. And he cons tons of people into 
And it was all these rich people that just were thinking, oh, this is the son of a celebrity. And he had no real education, no real training, but he just conned people for for years. And this one was a little bit different because it was more than just about money, because you see, you know, if you read the articles and, and I mean, obviously the movie is a little and the play are, are sort of fictionalized versions of it, but he was getting another sense of an, of fulfillment from it in that he was rising up through the class strata in order to like feel like this sense of power and accomplishment and acceptance. But of course, always there was money involved as well. So, I mean, one of the things that, in talking about this, because we're going to give a couple of movie examples as we work through all this. Remember, even in the Catch Me If You Can, you're watching Leonardo DiCaprio do these things. He's lying to people. He could have, in pretending to be a doctor, he could have killed a number of people. He could have killed people by not knowing how to fly a jet, all these things that he does. But when we watch it in the movies, this is what the writers and the creators and the producers and directors do. They have to make the characters relatable. And sometimes making them relatable means, yes, he comes from a traumatic background and I understand how he was traumatized and he learned to be a grifter and this is what he does. But they almost minimize the wreckage that these people cause in other people's lives. So it's like the same characteristics that make them so intoxicating and fun to watch on screen those are the same characteristic and traits that make them absolutely dangerous in real life. So in the real life, there's there's really not much compelling about these people that are really sharks. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, because these are very, not just relatable, but likable characters where you're almost yeah. rooting for them in a sense, right? And with so many of these stories, I think these are brilliant people with really amazing skills. Oh God, they're all smart. They're all so smart and obviously can put a lot of time and energy into a trade craft. It's one of those where you're in, and and I know we talk about this when we talk about psychopathy of if they're just channeling that for good, (laughs) you know, because it's, it's not like these are easy, really super easy cons with these more high level intricate ones that we're talking about to where it's a quick buck. I mean, they are really putting a lot of time and effort into these. And if that was just done for some of them do get into legit careers, but think about how successful and just unstoppable they'd be at that. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I remember talking to a kid in state prison and we were talking because he was getting ready to get out and we were sort of doing some exit counseling and he he, you know, I said, are you going to, you are in here for a drug charge? Are you going to go back? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go back. I mean, this, that's what I know. It's what I'm good at. I'll just be better this time and I'll be more careful. And I, I, and I'm not the greatest at math, but I pulled out a yellow pad and I said, so tell me, you know, I'm, I'm not up on how much you guys make at your level of, of drug deals. How much do you make a week? And so he gives me this figure and and I said, so what's your day like? You know, and he starts describing like, you know, working late into the early morning hours, going to sleep, getting up, you know, but it's like a almost like a 13, 14 hour day. And there's picking it up and there's managing this. And first I, I wanted to frame it like I said, 
your management skills are kind of amazing. Like you've got these great time management skills because you're on your schedule. And, you know, I would encourage you not to hurt people, but, you know, I know you got to keep your employees in line or whatever. But so you're telling me you work a 12 hour day, six days a week, and this is how much you bring home per week. If we, and we did the math on it, just like simple, you know, he was making $10 an hour. And I was, I said, you, you, you with your skills could make more than that someplace else, you know, it was something that had never occurred to him. And it was also, but he goes, but I don't want to do that. I'm like, well, if you don't want to, you don't want to, but you know, I think that sometimes the lower level grifters are not really aware of their, you know, their criminal lifestyle is not really making them as much money as they think it is. Yeah, true. I wonder if it's just because the the lifestyle and the day in and day out of the actions that are part of their job description, if you will, is just so blended. And that's how then you end up working 12, 13 hours a day. Oh, that's an interesting, yeah. You know? There's no real separation between your work identity and your non-work identity. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting because I think con, con men probably are the same way. Well, like they just, that's what they live. They live the con. Right. Right. And then, of course, we're all very aware of recently of like Dirty John, John Meehan. You know, that was was a romantic con, but he had with the benefit of financial gain at the end. But he had been involved in all sorts of other types of cons for financial gain. And then Elizabeth Holmes, you know, she (laughs) she got investors to invest $700 million, you know, and her company Theranos was at one point worth a billion dollars. So, I mean, we're not talking peanuts here. Yeah. You know, with her, like I've said before, we've mentioned her in, in, I think two previous episodes, I'm not completely convinced that there's not some sort of delusional belief system going on for her as well. I think she's like that, a weird outlier of both a con artist and completely delusional. Yeah, I go back and sort of like Dr. Death, like Dr. Death had no idea until he was in Christopher Dunch until he was in the courtroom. And one expert after another came up and said, this guy does not know what he's doing. I think he actually believed he was a good doctor. You know, he thought he was doing all of it correctly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I go back and forth on that. And I, I totally see when you brought up that angle of her being delusional, I was like, whoa, that is so mind-blowing, but could be so possible. And then I think, well, I wonder what the effect of the fact that she's a woman also has on our perspective. Like, yeah. oh, like yeah. think that she can't be a con artist or that successful of one. Um, and if that impacts us at all, I don't know. It's She's just as fascinating. So. Yeah. All right, we'll stop plugging a Wondery podcast here with Dirty John and and Elizabeth Holmes. (laughs) Yeah, so before I think we really talk about the psychology of the con man or the con artist, we have to sort of talk about the psychology of the con and why that works. So really, there has to be some sort of emotional foundation laid here because you need to get people to trust, to invest, to connect emotionally. And maybe that means through money, if people are very emotionally invested in them making money, then they'll be willing to invest with their wallets as well. 
But if there is an emotional investment made, then by the time we start to think something's wrong, we start to talk ourselves out of it or minimize it because we are so emotionally invested. And then we might no one, ourselves to stay No one in wants it. to be wrong. No right. one wants we to be wrong. Yeah, we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to be duped. And we might then persuade ourselves to stay in it for the long haul, thinking, oh, my God, this can't be it. I'm going to live in my happy little denial place and see how it plays out. Or I think it's so underreported because people are so embarrassed that they never come forward with it. Right. So, you know, whether it is a romantic scam or something financial, um, it's it's not always the thing that you want to yell from the rooftops of how you've been duped and how you've been had. Um, I was going to say I have a really dear friend in my hometown uh, who I grew up with, basically. She's just like probably one of the most wonderful, sweet, authentic women I've ever met. She works in the medical field. And her husband fell for a romance, an online romance scam. And it ended up, you know, impacting their marriage. And it was one of these where he fell for someone who said that they were a model. (laughs) Of course they did. And, you know, he ends up sending money. And it's like one of the, I mean, now I have, I had a relationship with this individual too, because he was the, the husband of my friend. But, you know, even my friend and I, like, after it was all said and done, we were, like, having a glass of wine, looking at each other, going, what was he thinking? You, you don't have anything to offer. The, the, it could not have been real. You know, right. but it's that, that investment in believing that, you know, you're going to be validated physically or sexually or, and they keep saying, oh, the money's going to come back. You know, if you just keep giving me money, it's all going to be paid back. It's going to be $10 million. I swear to you, it's going to be $10 million. And this went on for four years, and he is not fully convinced that it wasn't a con. He's still not convinced. Wow. Well, and and that's, as we were saying earlier, other people from the outside are so quick to point it out. But when we get flattered or, um, it, okay, so the, the saying is, if it, you know, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. But when we when it happens to us, there's this weird thing where from the inside we go, but you know what? I'm really deserving of a great loving relationship by a model or I've been sticking it out, dating all of these dumbasses. Yay, finally, I'm getting my day or yay, finally, I'm getting an opportunity to invest in this thing, you know, buying the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal or whatever before everyone else awesome. Finally, I'm getting my due. So what would we call that? So it's, I I like the way you phrased it of, I deserve this. Um, I, I've been suffering. Right. Right. So I deserve this. And it's not (laughs) an entitlement. It's a, a, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have entitled. Yeah. Entitled is not really the word that has the nuance to it, but it's no, and it's not really, it's not a confirmation bias. I'm not sure. It might be more like motivated cognition where, no, that's one views you already have or like self-serving with biases, but I'm so not. It almost sure. be like that, but having to create a new one. 
Yeah. And not existing one, but maybe, and maybe that's a result of, well, it sounds too good to be true, but I really want it to be true. Yes. So I've got to support what I want. And so the next in line is, well, I've been working really hard or I'm really lonely and I deserve this. It seems like there's like this sort of sequence that kind of we emotionally attach to in order to right. support that bias, that distorted right. cognition. Well, and, and so it comes down to as, as just a human race, I mean, we are very naturally trusting and believe in the good in people. So which is a survival mechanism. We it have, is. We have to have conf- we have to have trust in our tribe or else we right. would not survive as a species. Right. Right. So and and we can we can say that as like this innate survival, physical survival like you're talking about or there's the truth default theory that Dr. Timothy Levine developed. It's also talked about in a chapter of Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. But the that trust is such a centerpiece of human society that defaulting to thinking that everybody is lying would destroy us. It would destroy our humanity. Yes. Oh, we can't just wow. walk around thinking the worst about everyone because who would what would our existence be like? Yeah, that's be like sort of existential psychotherapy would be, I think, addressing that, you know, coming from. There is no meaning, uh, no meaning other than what we apply to it. But yeah, that would be overwhelming to not have some sort of uh, protection or barrier against walking around feeling that every everybody's not necessarily paranoid that everybody's against you, but that no one's for you. No one's really for you. Yeah, yeah. So and and that's why cons work because if if we're naturally all very trusting human beings and believe in the good in people, then. If there are few con people in working in that world, then it works. If everyone was a con person, it wouldn't work. Right. <laughs> but not only are we naturally so trusting, but also we're really shitty at telling when people are lying. But that's something we really haven't talked about. I mean, maybe we've mentioned it, but we love to assume that we're good at telling when people are lying. And all the studies show exactly the opposite, that we are not yeah. good at it at all. All the studies show that we are basically a smidge over chance. So between like 54, 56% of the time, we can tell when people are lying. And I'm telling you, that is just the layperson, college students, cops. You bring any sort of group in and no group is really better than the other at saying who's lying. We're actually really good. Studies show that we're really good at identifying when people are telling the truth. Yeah. But when people are lying, we don't know. We're not sure. And we all, it's always boiled down into these like cute little psychology today articles about, you know, look for bad eye contact, look for a shift of the torso to the right away from you. And I mean, there are so many experts, I use the term loosely, so quote unquote experts that will go on talk shows. But all the studies show that no, there's people aren't necessarily really good at it. No. We're not. So so those two things, I think, in particular, sort of create the perfect recipe for falling for a con. Um, and again, it's when we look at people that fall for cons, they're not stupid. Oftentimes they are in a vulnerable place. Now, if that's vulnerable emotionally or financially, usually the easiest targets are the lonely, the insecure and the elderly. 
But I'd also say that that's the mark hallmark of confidence is that confidence and all of the research that we've been reading is that they're looking for a, a, a break in the armor. Yeah. So that may be that they go in, they create confidence by saying, you're from Pomona. I'm from Pomona. Don't you just love that ice cream shop that was down there? Creating that relationship. It's almost like a used car salesman does. Yep. It can create a relationship. And then by creating and building on that relationship, they find even more weaknesses that they can exploit. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So the, there's the, conf, again, the confidence coming in and then the person feels confident in the con artist. They can, they can give over their trust to that person. Right. Well, this is a great place to leave it. We're going to take a second and then be right back. Okay. Hey folks, welcome back. Thanks for holding out for us. This is a long episode that we're having a ton of fun with. So we wanted to kind of circle around to another interesting sort of set of principles that dovetail to this subject very well. There's a really fantastic book out there that uh, was written by Dr. Robert Cialdini, who is the Regents Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Marketing at Arizona State University. That's only one in a long line of amazing accomplishments that this psychologist has achieved. And he's really big in marketing and really big in political campaigns. I mean, he really understands on a macro level human behavior, which I think is sometimes quite different from the work that Shiloh and I do, which is one-on-one -on -one or small groups, like understanding group psychology, organizational psychology in concert with behavior is a, a whole skill set unto itself. So he wrote a really well-regarded book about seven years ago called The Psychology of Persuasion. Highly recommend it. I'm, I'm on my third reading of it now because it's so valuable, not because I want to manipulate people, but because I want to understand the process of persuasion. Because when we're talking about conning, conning is persuasion. So he has... Okay, you've persuaded me. I persuaded you to read it? Yeah. Good. Well, maybe if we tweet him, he'll give us some, he'll uh, expand our listenership. But so he started out with six, which are now seven universal principles of influence. And I'm just going to go through them really quickly. Reciprocity, which is that people give you back the same kind of treatment that they've received from you. Consistency, meaning that people are going to feel this urge or desire to comply with a request that is made if they see that it is consistent with what they have publicly committed themselves to in your presence. So that's very specific. It's complicated, but it's specific. It is the desire to comply with the request that they feel is consistent with what they've already committed to in your presence. So they've got to back up. It's like a confirmation bias type uh, behavior. Yep. There's social proof, meaning that individuals will be more likely to say yes to a request that you give them if you have given them evidence that people just like them have been saying yes to it too. People say this is the best taco in town. You've got to have this because everybody's saying that it's the best taco. The power of yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a book. Called um, power liking of yes also. is the fourth universal principle. So 
having positive regard for the requester. So a way to make things happen in your direction is to try and do a little digging and uncover the similarities or parallels that exist between the you, the person that's doing the persuasion, and that individual that you want to influence or bring over to your mode of thinking, and then raise those commonalities. So raise that, hey, we wow, we are really getting on. We really like each other. And that increases rapport. Also, number five is authority. And when you are perceived as having knowledge and credibility on this topic, you're more likely to be respected and trusted. So authority is is basically paralleling with confidence right there. You're right. Um, establishing yourself as someone that an individual can have confidence in. The other thing is scarcity. People will try and seize or look for these opportunities that you offer them if they are under the impression that they're rare or scarce or dwindling in availability. So when Amazon, it says like, there's only yeah, two in now. stock, buy guess what? Yeah, but this deal card... is not for everybody. Like there's only a couple, it might not be right for you, but like, you know, I guess if you wanted to get it, you could buy it. Yeah. Or limited edition, or this is, um, you know, just hard to get items. It, it's very common to have you purchase Sale now, like everything that. must go. <laughs> right. So, and right. then the last one that was a, the, the additional principle that was added in 2016 is the seventh principle. And he called it what he called it the unity principle. And he says that through this, it's the, the sort of the concept that we identify ourselves with others, or the more that we identify ourselves with others, the more that we are then influenced by these others. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Right. It's so funny when you um, added these to our outline to look at today, I thought this is great because these are all of the tactics that we use for right. negotiation. That's exactly it. This is just like 101. It's just CNC written in cop speak. Is... When we're, when we're being taught this at the FBI, yeah. it was like, it's this exact same principles, but different wording. Yeah. Cause you're getting, you want people to start shaping their behaviors to get them to do what you want them to do, which is surrender and not harm anyone and have it end successfully and peacefully, um, which we will probably have an episode coming up about negotiations oh, in cool. May. But um, we'll go into that more. But yeah, it's just, it's exactly what we have uh, derived it from. Nice. Were you going to talk about the dark triad? Um, it's okay. dark and deadly. It's not silent <laughs> and deadly. Okay. So we're moving into the psychology of actual con artists a little bit more. And I'm just really going to focus on this triad. Um, I highly recommend Maria Konnikova's book, The Confidence Game. She, she has a PhD in psychology. She also writes a psych column for The New Yorker. And she wrote this really fantastic book about confidence mend. She talks a lot about this dark triad. And essentially, it is made up of three things that we talk about quite a bit here. Psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. So psychopathy is a quick review for you all. I know you've heard us talk about this agnosium, but it is a cluster of traits, personality traits that is not diagnosable. It's it's not something that is in the DSM. However, there's a ton of research on it. Um, Dr. Robert Hare has done the most, and he has an assessment tool called the PCLR, where we are able to essentially go through an assessment, rate 
the severity of different behaviors and affect traits for individuals, how they present in order to see how high they score on the PCLR. And if they score above a 30, then basically we can say with confidence, this person fits the criteria for a psychopath. So some examples, it's it's 20 different traits. Some of the behavioral examples would be pathological lying, um, a parasitic lifestyle, maybe yeah. your roommate, Scott, living off of you living off your telephone bill, um, early behavioral problems, promiscuous sexual behavior, irresponsibility, impulsivity, where the more affective types of traits would be glibness and superficial charm, a grandiose sense of self-worth, um, might be something like shallow affect. So they actually aren't showing a lot of affect or it's just very surface level. It's, they're not tapping into to deeper emotions. Let's see here. We have lack of remorse or guilt, which we've talked a lot about as a hallmark of psychopathy and lack of realistic or long-term goals. So you, you start to get a picture of what this person looks like. Um, very antisocial yet Think of that as to the nth degree for someone who's psychopathic. And then the the other one is narcissism. Scott, you want to give us just a quick yeah, review of narcissism? Yeah, we talked about it before, but basically narcissistic personality disorder is uh, circles around a pattern of uh, arrogant, self-centered thinking and behaviors, uh, lack of empathy and consideration for those around them, whether it's... Uh, uh, friends, family, work colleagues, and really a hallmark is sort of, and where the name comes from, is an excessive need for admiration. So sometimes we describe people with NPD as demanding, patronizing, selfish, manipulative, cocky, and those aspects and think of thinking and behavior, they really manifest in, in every aspect of the narcissist's life across the spectrum, from work and friendships um, to family and love relationships. And it's, I mean, it's almost hard to think of a narcissist really being able to love. And, uh, and what we understand about uh, NPD is that there may be some certainly extant biological factors and brain structure that contribute to it. But ultimately, the narcissist is built by an intense, intense, overwhelming sense of insecurity. Uh, that comes from childhood. And one, one of my hopes one day is that we will interview or get Eleanor Greenberg, who's a psychologist analyst on the East Coast, and she writes extensively about narcissists. And I like I feel like I've learned more about narcissists from her and understanding how they get to where they are by reading her writings. Um, so people with uh, the personality disorder, they are incredibly, incredibly resistant to changing their behaviors, even though when everything is burning down around them. And the tendency is always everything gets reflected out. It's everybody else's problem. You know, they're incredibly sensitive to criticism. So as opposed to an, a person with antisocial behavior that really doesn't care, except as like a competition, people with narcissistic personality disorder can be wounded. But, you know, they surround themselves with people that basically just go along to get along and which only really reinforces the behavior. So grandiosity increase, you know, extensive uh, self-importance, really living in almost a fantasy world that supports these ideas of delusion, real constant need for uh, praise and admiration, uh, a real sense of entitlement, exploiting other people without guilt or shame, 
And that's something where we use the term narcissistic extension. So because people aren't really fully formed people to them or individuals. So you're seeing a lot of overlap with even just the two Absolutely. parts of the triad I, we've talked about I was going to hand already. it right back to you because then we see it's almost like a Venn diagram with three elements because the Machiavellian uh, bullet points that you're going to hit are there's a huge overlap. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't a term. Machiavellianism isn't a term that I have used too much. And, and it's it, not a honestly, diagnosis. Let's be we're clearly. Not no, a it's not a diagnosis. And I don't think I could have, it's one of those things that you can't, I couldn't have given a great uh, definition off the top of my head. It's kind of like, you know, when you see it sort of thing. Um, The most I knew about Machiavelli was, uh, you know, all the Tupac conspiracies (laughs) and why he studied him. But, um, but now that I have done my research, um, did you know there's actually, there's a scale, there's a Machiavellianism I only, scale. I feel really bad because I only realized that as we were doing the research. So there's high mock and low mock. Yeah. So the, the mock, mock four, mock five, I think there's a newer version of it, um, was developed by psychologists, Richard Christie and Florence Geis in 1970, um, based off of a lot of research that they did where they felt this was a distinct personality trait in and of itself. Um, You can actually take it online. The version I did, I took it yesterday um, and higher scores and more indicative of Machiavellianism. And I scored a 50 out of a hundred. So you can't get more basic (laughs) or average. Well, because I I mean, but now it should also be said that like you, you want to be there in the middle or low middle because if you're really low on low mock, they, they say that the personalities that score super low can mean that you are too agreeable to the point of not getting your own needs met, too submissive. You know, I mean, there, it's good to yeah. think well of the people around you and to have a positive outview generally, but you don't want to you don't want to be so trusting and, and good natured that you get walked on all the time. Right, right. So. Um... The the best way that I sort of formulated my definition from everything that I was reading was a real ruthlessness for manipulation and exploitation of others. And these people are very deliberate planners for that manipulation, very much for the long game or the long con. I thought, you know, after reading, I thought, okay, the perfect character that comes into my head is Frank Underwood from yes, House of Cards. Perfect. Because he would talk about like the long game. You couldn't even as a viewer really see it sometimes of all the pieces that he was putting into place to get what he wanted in the end. Or however that shifted for him and just the ruthlessness that came with that. Uh, It's like, I don't know how someone like that could keep so many uh, games or plays in their mind. But of course, I know it's fictionalized, but to me, that was just like the perfect well there's a lot of there are a lot of people that talk about stephen miller in you know the current uh federal administration you know that he's like it's you know people are really gobsmacked that someone who says the things that he says which are very racist and i mean incredibly racist incredibly uh, just awful but like you you read these traits well the bullet points it's like oh wow we have a lot of politicians and people that work in public service that have these traits as well yeah, which is what we've always said about psychopathy, so it makes yeah. sense. And and their view of humanity and, and the rest of society is that it's incredibly gullible and just kind of for the taking to be right. manipulated. So, and Machiavelli, who wrote the book, is that the foundation is that strong rulers should be harsh 
and unforgiving with their subjects and enemies, and that all of the glory and survival of the individual is justified by any means, even if the the way you get there is brutal, immoral, unethical. It's it's any any means justifies the ends, and the ends are all personal, and the right. ends are all about consolidating power. Right, right. Thank you. So, yeah, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli was a diplomat and philosopher in the Renaissance. Um, another Italian, I think. So I've <laughs> uh, got a lot of Italian examples here today. But um, yeah, so that's that's the dark triad. Um, I, I think it sums it up pretty well when you're looking at kind of the worst of the worst and when they're trying to do it just for financial gain. I know we are going to touch on a few people that it's for, you know, recognition and, and or power. But I think with that, we're always seeing that there is some financial gain as well. Um, but kind of a, a scary person when you just look at those three forms. Yeah, of the one triad. of the things I, that popped out to me, because like all the other bullet points are basically can be encompassed by the other two that we mentioned in the triad. But the one that doesn't really dovetail so closely and that's why it kind of sticks out to me is that they can be very very patient and calculating so psychopaths are not always calculating sometimes they are but they're not always calculating and certainly narcissists yeah impulsivity is one of one of their traits oftentimes found that very interesting so um did you want to touch on anything about those influence principles and when it's ethical to use them when it's not ethical to use them did you I don't know if you wanted to bring you know, that up at I all. I think he's pretty clear. Dr. Uh, uh, Cialdini or Cialdini is pretty great about framing it as like, this is, this is how we sell things. This is how we persuade people. And there's a lot to be said for persuading people to something that benefits all of society. You know, the way he frames it in his book of persuasion is all positive, but, you know, clearly people could gotcha. can switch this. I mean, they, they can use any of these things depending on, you know, what their own personal motivation is. Well, and I, I, you know, obviously I go back to thinking about using them in crisis negotiation situation. And of course that's for the greater good if we're using persuasion to get that person to surrender. And there is a lot of ethics that go into it. You know, one of our hard and fast rules is that we don't lie to the person because if you get caught, they're never going to trust you for the rest of that right. negotiation. And or oftentimes we have frequent flyers, people that we go back out on the same calls and they're not going to trust exactly. you the next time or the next negotiator is going to be like, thanks for lying to them last time. I couldn't get anywhere with them. So, uh, of course, especially when people and the good guys are uh, trying to use some of these, using them for the greater good would be what I would think of. But thanks. I just yeah. wanted to circle back to that real quick. So I, I, we're going to talk about a couple of movie examples. I wanted to go back to talking about Frank Abengale in Catch Me If You Can. And I love the quote by him where he says, a con artist's only weapon is his brain. And again, coming back to just how incredibly bright and smart these individuals are. Um, but so he, his crimes took place in the 60s, basically between the ages of 15 and 21. So he was very young over... Those five years, he passed bad checks in 26 different countries, totaling about $2.5 million. And 
he started off his very first con, his very first crime was actually against his father as a teen, where his dad gave him a gas card, you know, to be able to get gas to go to and from school. And he would buy big ticket items from some of these gas stations that also had like auto body shops attached. So he would buy like tires and then return them for cash. So his dad ended up with like this $4,000 bill at some point. And his mom wasn't having it. She actually ended up calling the police and had him sent to juvie. But that was his very first. So that's interesting because in the Um, movie, they play it off. I remember Christopher Walken plays his dad and he's portrayed that his dad is a con man. Yes, yes, exactly. That his dad's a con man. It is true that his mom was French and um, was they the parent his parents had met in the war and dad brought her home and they did divorce when he was a teenager. But yeah, you kind of get this idea that he learned some of this behavior from dad and that the parents losing money through the dad's cons as well as then from the divorce is kind of his drive and wanting to make money because he feels like it'll sort of fix his family and bring his parents back together and they'll have their house and their cars and their things again. So there's, I feel like the movie was trying to suck me in a little bit yeah. more emotionally too, which, to make you feel Right, which is what him. we're talking about. Like, it's such a fascinating story. You want to root yeah. for an underdog, but you have to remember that the underdog is also a criminal. Yes, yes. So his sort of claim to fame, which is just still, I think, astonishing is that he masqueraded as a Pan Am pilot to fly around the world, to go to all these different countries. And he first sort of saw that that there were banks that would cash checks and cater to airline employees without, I mean, this is the 60s. This is a time where like, you know, being a pilot was the shit. And, you know, you're just revered and you have these beautiful women and flight attendants around the you uniform the and yeah, you could walk down the street and just people wanted to autograph. Every, I mean, people <laughs> also forget that at that time that flying was a luxury. So it was really people from upper middle class and higher that were, had access to national international flights. And, and also it was a time before photo ID. So you just basically had a little paper with your name on it that was your driver's license, that was your ID. It was crazy for us to think of now in today's world for everything we have to do for identification. Yeah, but, you know, having that uniform goes back to that... Authority. um, The authority and, and people just being sort of physically by being able to see someone in a uniform being held in high regard. And and what he would do is he wouldn't ever really fly with Pan Am. He would fly with these other airlines in what they call deadheading, where he was sitting in an extra seat to, yeah, get back to a different location. And so he would just fly around in this way. One time he did actually get invited to fly the jetliner and he was smart enough to be able to push an autopilot button, I guess. But but he also, he was an imposter working as a doctor at one point. Thank goodness he really was just working as a supervisor overseeing some interns like on a night shift. But like you said, uh, how many lives were at risk with a potential emergency right, what that could have, have gone happened? wrong? 
Yeah. And it, it, it was pretty short lived. I think it was about, well, I mean, 11 months, you can say that's longer. It's short, but Frank Abrangale, the the real man said there was actually an incident where I, I think it had to do with a baby not breathing or something. And one of the nurses was able to handle it, but it really freaked <laughs> him out to where he well, sort of no pulled the plug shit, on man. that. And then I there's like, so. there's a great scene yeah. in the movie about him in a courtroom and he's preparing to fake being a lawyer by watching Perry Mason. <laughs> Right. And the judge is like, what are you talking about? This is just a prelim. He was acting like it was the trial of the century. (laughs) But yeah, he he actually passed the bar. I think it was in New Orleans. So he faked his credentials to be able to get to sit for the bar, but he he passed it by taking it so many times that basically by eliminating, you know, what he had gotten wrong or whatever, he was able to finally pass it. But he moonlighted as a teacher as well. He escaped from custody twice. So he he was a, a slippery guy. He was eventually caught in France. An airline attendant that he dated knew that he was wanted and actually spotted him and called the police. And he spent a year in a French prison. And then because he was wanted in so many countries, he was extradited to Sweden and he was he got a very much reduced sentence in Sweden, but then he was he knew he was going to be tried in Italy next. Like they were just going to keep bouncing him around to all the different countries to be tried. And his attorney was able to get the U.S. to Sweden to deport him to the U.S., where he ended up getting his 12 year sentence for various fraud charges. He ended up only serving five years because the FBI agent who in the movie is portrayed by Tom Hanks would visit him in prison and have him start taking a look at other fraud cases and using his expertise. They got him a reduced sentence for his cooperation and helping out with investigations. And he tried, you know, a couple of menial jobs here and there when he got out, really wasn't his thing, ended up starting his own security consultation firm and is very successful at that. He actually teaches at the FBI Academy now. He runs his financial fraud consultation company. And look, I mean, this is an example of him using his experience, but also his smarts to run this incredibly successful firm. It's hard for us. You know, you can read the books and the interviews with Abagnale and they're fascinating and you can watch the movie, which is so fictionalized. And I think, you know, it's also really important to be careful of falling under Tom Hanks's spell. You know, Tom Hanks has this incredible quality that he presents and projects as an actor as someone that is trustworthy. I don't think he had, I'm trying to think, has he ever played somebody that's not trustworthy? But one of the things that they play on in this story is that this kid grew up in a broken family and he becomes the consistent male figure for him as he's chasing him, going to visit him in prison. He gets him out. Now, who who knows how much of that was fictionalized, but it's interesting looking at this sort of from a family dynamic perspective that he becomes a father figure. And maybe he actually is the first real example of like, look, this is what you can do with your life. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. You can be an adult. You can you can be an adult, a responsible, ethical, moral adult. And here's how you do it. Yeah, you can be of service. You can turn this around Yeah, the other way. But yeah, that's that's a really interesting take on it for sure. Did you find other movies? Yeah, the one I had two that are favorites. One uh, that I think is really great that's like, I can't believe it's almost 20 years old now, but is called um, Heartbreakers with Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt. It's hysterical. 
they're a mother-daughter con team. They're conning old guys, you know, just like dating guys that are just one foot in the grave, you know, just sort of run the same con <laughs> over and over again. It's really funny. With her well, giant both boobs. Of them, <laughs> you know, wearing these sheath dresses and look, you know, just looking amazing. And, and it's it's pretty great. I mean, it also shows what a great actress Sigourney Weaver is. Dude, her, her comedy is so good. And Gene Hackman plays like this really disgusting old guy that's like he smokes so much he's like literally yellow and he's coughing all the oh, time I love him. but it that's a great one that's like that's lighthearted and Ray Liotta who played our arson in our one of our first episodes he plays like sort of a obsessed criminal that's in love with Sir Gurney Weaver and it all has a sort of a happy ending that's sweet but there's a dark one too that I highly highly recommend which is called uh, The Grifters. And it is Annette Benning, John Cusack, and uh, Angelica Houston. And it is really, really dark. It's about three grifters, three professional con men who are, one is like, uh, you know, uh, Angelica Houston is John Cusack's mom. And, you know, he's estranged from her and he hooks up physically and partners with Annette Benning, and all of them have their own secrets, and it all ends really badly. I mean, it's it's fascinating to watch their cons run, but and John Cusack is the one that you think he actually isn't a, a, a psychopath, but clearly the other two mm -hmm. are, are pure psychopaths, the two women. And there's this one moment where they all meet. He gets beaten up because one of his cons goes badly, and he's in the hospital. Because he's beaten so badly, and both his mom and his girlfriend, and the chemistry between the three of them in that moment is is palpable because it is these two women that have a connection to this man, but they're both such narcissists. It's not about whether or not he's human; it's their possession, and so they go after each other in this really frightening way. And it, it ends very badly. I highly recommend it. But they some of the cons they run are really are really interesting. And it's over the top fancy stuff like um, now you see me now, you don't, you know, the one about the magicians running. The heist. You know, we oh, see big right. Hollywood versions. These are like because John Cusack plays like a low. They're all pretty much low level grifters. Do you know where the term grifter comes from? I, I didn't look. That I up, don't. But... That's a good one. Anybody out there know what it is, uh, put it on the website. Let us know what grifter means. So those were the two movies that I liked. Did you have one that you liked? That oh. um, No, I, did, I didn't bother looking at any others. I just knew I wanted to focus on yeah. Catch Me If You Can. But they're not. That's a good segue, though. They're not always men. There's tons of con women out there. Yeah. Um, there's one that's very recent. I mean, we've got some historical ones that are, that are fascinating for various reasons. Um, and we've got one th that I urge you, please go look at our show notes and our bibliography on the website and read the New York times articles about Anna Delvey. This all started in 2016 and Anna Delvey is, uh, a Russian woman, uh, born Anna Sorokin. And she basically... She was a student that immigrated from Russia, I believe, to Germany with her parents and ended up going to school very briefly in the UK. And from her late teens into her early 20s, just created a completely different uh, 
identity for herself, came to New York and basically grifted the entire arts community. And she had just cash. You know, she had there's actually several books written about by people that she um, ran, ran a con on. And people that just basically she just convinced people that she was this rich socialite and she was very coy and very kittenish and coquettish and very well spoken and just she could adapt to any situation. And people just gave her money, just gave her tons of money. And she would always be the one taking people out and then disappear when the bill was being paid and then come back after it was paid and then Everyone that talks to her, like, you know, she ran up incredible hotel bills and then would move from one hotel to the next. She took all of her friends yeah. to Greece or Morocco or something and just like, you know, hey, um, who wants to come on a plane with me? And then they get there and it's like, oh, my God, all my money's tied up. And I'm just, it, it, again, coming back to like listening to it and going like, who the hell is falling for this day after day? Right. But I mean, I think it's just always keeping people on edge. You know, some people are yeah. really masters at that. And then switching yeah. it oh, to sure. like, oh, poor me. I mean, there's like these wonder in the New York Times articles there. The writer really focuses on her physicality and how, she, you know, she would curl on a couch with her feet under her legs and, you know, kind of pout if she didn't get what she wanted. And, you know, she's not particularly beautiful, but she apparently had this real presence that was very, you know, mm -hmm. would take over a room. That's how I'm sitting in my yes. closet right now with my yeah, feet tucked a, under me. Yeah, you're an artist sitting in your closet, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, my luxurious closet. One of the things that, I mean, it all eventually found, uh, fell apart for uh, Anna Sorokin. And she's actually doing time in uh, New York right now and is eligible for parole in 2021. But one of the things that was a hallmark of her trial is that now, this is from the prosecutor's mouth, but it's also echoed by other people because everybody showed up. Everybody that she had grifted showed up for her trial. And she just didn't give a shit about any of them. You know, she was like, she almost seems to sort of get off on all these upset people being around her. And she would sort of create drama about like, well, I can't possibly come to court today because they won't give me any clothes. I'm not going to come. I'm not going to come to court in my in my prison clothes. I mean, forget it. You know, she kept rewriting the script as if she was the one in power. And I think it finally, you know, just kind of all fell down around her. And once again, this comes back to something we've talked about in other episodes about how men and women are held in these types of situations. So, you know, uh, Belafonte, who, Eugenia Belafonte, who wrote for the New York Times, um, had real harsh criticism for the district attorney, Cyrus Vance, about being biased against women because he was kind of celebrating her conviction on Twitter. 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 <laughs> and they, she pointed out that in the past, you know, he had not prosecuted men who were clearly guilty of way more serious crimes, including Harvey Weinstein and Dominique Strauss-Kahn. So, you know, once again, example of even as, as much as she grifted, like that there's a real difference in the way men and women could, you know, get their sentences or even if they'll pick up the case. But once again, a lot of these people right. don't want to admit, like when we talk about Bernie Madoff, who ran one of the biggest cons of all, a lot of people didn't want to admit that they had been taken. You know, there were a lot of rich people that were like, oh, I don't want my name out there. 
because I don't want people to believe. Mm. Well, it was also part of like anybody that was involved with Bernie Madoff should have known within two or three years of their involvement with him that it wasn't real because it's not possible for his interest and payback and all everything that he promised was not possible by any economic metric. It just doesn't work. But people chose to believe it because he kept giving them money. You know, he would like, oh, well, here's how much your dividend is paying off this time. So I think that Anna is a really good example of, you know, someone modern, but then there's some great historical examples. Um, there's another one that a movie was made about with, oh God, what's the actress's name? It's Kevin Klein's wife. She was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I'm blanking. You got to look, it, look up it up on IMDb. Keep talking. Anyway, I'll it's a it great up. movie called Princess Caribou. And it's the story of an English servant girl named Mary Baker. And she ran a scam with a male friend of hers who was a Portuguese sailor and convinced people in 1817 that she was from the island of Java Sioux and her name was Princess Caribou. And she made up a whole language and a whole like supposed alphabet. And she was writing notes and she pretended not to be able to speak English. And she, you know, wrapped kind of brightly colored scarves around her head and she had everybody going for a while and um, all these wealthy people wow. wanted to like help her out and get her back. And nobody knew where the island of Java Sioux was. It was very funny. She just made it all up. So weird. They couldn't find it. And on then <laughs> when they finally found out that she was a huge fraud, she ended up making her way from then on by making public appearances as a con woman and, you know, wearing her costume and kind of going through the motion. So that was one that didn't, Wow. And too badly, but that Phoebe, was Cates, Phoebe Cates, that's a beautiful, beautiful woman and very talented and apparently very sweet and married to Kevin Klein, who's amazing. But one of the things that is the theme of so many con women, including Princess Caribou and Anna Sorokin, is presenting as someone else, presenting as someone rich or presenting as royalty. So that in, there's several examples of this. Um Aurora Florentina Magnuson, and her real name was Helga de la Brache, and she was telling people in Europe that she was the secret daughter of King Gustav of Sweden and Queen Frederica of Baden. So, you know, walking around convincing people that she was this, you know, basically royal family or, or bastard child of royal family, that worked for a few years. They had Mary Carlton is an English woman that fled to the Netherlands and rebranded herself as Princess Van Wolway from Cologne. And she was able to just get, go through a series of lovers and tons of money. And it worked very well until she, was, she got great. caught and hung. But my favorite one is a woman named Barbara Ernie. And I don't really know, understand what her name is coming from, but it's called the Golden Booze. So I don't know if, I guess that's her, was her nickname, the Golden Booze. So she is, was born in the 18th century in Leitkenstein or Lichtenstein to a homeless couple. So, you know, think about this 18th century homeless couple, you know, very, very poor born, but she found a way to make a living and she would travel throughout the countryside of Europe with a huge traveling trunk, like a, like a, you know, a sturdy, like steamer trunk for that time. And she would claim that it was full of treasure. So she would stop uh, at inns and she would, or she would get into rich people's homes and she would say, look, 
this is all that's left of my family fortune. Can you please just keep it safe for me? Like just, just all you need to do is just put this wherever you put your, your valuables and I'll leave in the morning and, and please. So she had a friend that was a little person um, that had dwarfism that was locked inside the trunk and then would get locked you know, by the rich family in the area where all their valuables were kept and then would load up the trunk with all the silver and gold and China and then it would be carried out the next day and they wouldn't until realize, they wouldn't realize till later that they had been completely robbed by this dwarf who was no. loading up the trunk. And that is genius. So she finally confessed to 17 robberies after they figured it out and she was beheaded in 1785. Um, and she has the dubious distinction of being the last person uh, in Leitkenstein to be uh, executed. That is, that's kind of brilliant. I mean, it's a crazy story. That's but a great con. I, I'm that's sorry. It. That's a really great. Yeah. Con. Um, and then also there were. I'm changing my Twitter handle to the golden yeah. booze now. So there and also throughout <laughs> Victorian uh, England and 19th century Europe, there were just tons and tons of women who were capitalizing on what was really the, the birth of the spiritualist movement. And although the spiritualist movement actually started right. in uh, Southern America with the Fox sisters, it spread across the world because it was coming right after the Civil War and people were like uh, really sort of wanting to attempt to uh, reach out to loved ones. It happens every time there's a major cataclysm and people die. There's generally like a real um, sort of... Uh, reassessment and reattachment to spiritual beliefs. And unfortunately, there are people out there that will take advantage of it. So there were tons of uh, male and female spiritualists that would, you know, do seances and, and convince people that their loved ones, you know, wanted to give them money or they would give them a little bit of information and then come out of the trance and, oh, you have to come back next week and pay again in order to speak to your husband or son or daughter or loved one. So, yeah, cons, it's, it's interesting. I read in wow. one of the articles, this author said that uh, prostitution, sex work is not the, the world's oldest uh, uh, occupation, that conning right. is the oldest profession, profession, which I thought very interesting. Yeah, I saw that, too. I think I think they might be on to something. So there. I did want to give one last example of one that really pisses me off um, because it's personal to us and it's something that's actually really relatively recent. So, you know, folks, just the whole world of science is based on numerics and statistics and data. It's all data-driven. And in the world of human behavior, that can be very difficult to quantify. You can talk about something from a qualification perspective of talking about trends and things we observe anecdotally, and we can extrapolate um, theories and hypotheses from them. However, when we want to quantify something and look at, like, really a sequence of statistics that prove something to a very black and white degree, psychology is really difficult to do that. It's, it's really, really difficult to do that because there are so many spots along the spectrum of human behavior. But so sometimes, you know, we've always been taught, I know Shiloh and I were both taught when we were at our respective grad programs that when you do your dissertation, if you come up with a null result, that is information enough. We, we know Absolutely. that these factors we're looking at for this result 
They don't play anything. They, they play no rule. That's enough information. However, that doesn't get you research money. If you're at um, a major research organization or if you're at a university and you're expected to publish on a regular basis, they want it to be sexy. They want results. They want black and white statements that say one plus two equals three. And unfortunately, that doesn't really exist in psychology. So that's a big lead up to a Dutch social psychologist by the name of Diedrich Staple um, back in 2004 um, was found to be manipulating vast, vast amounts of data on human behavior. And even to the point where it's in some of the uh, textbooks, like he laid a groundwork of all these studies on racism and bias that other researchers for decades now have been building on. And he was the mentor and advisor to several hundred students who wrote their dissertations and went on to be researched. And he betrayed everyone by just making up data. He just made things up. That's infuriating. It's awful because, you know, how can you hope to have people trust you after that? You know, and it's like, it's also, I guess, as a, as a, as a psychologist, as a social scientist myself, you, you worry about like, well, what do I have wrong? What am, what am I doing wrong that may be based on incorrect data and, and forged research? So I think what's interesting here that sets him apart from some of our other examples is that there wasn't really a lot of money. It's not like he was getting rich. However, he was very famous and he was very respected. So it really, and we've got a bunch of links. I so urge our (laughs) listeners to read these interviews with him because you don't see a lot of the Machiavellian. You see a little bit of the psychopathy, but you see huge narcissism, just enormous narcissism. And and this poor me of like, oh, I just got so caught up in it. And wow. Do you know how he got caught? He got caught because he kept taking the data and he would tell people, well, let me go do it at my school computer because that's better for me to enter data. You know, I've got my all everything set up there. And one of his supervisees, one of the students, doctoral students he was supervising, was looking at the results on this test that they had done. And he turned to him and he said, so did we account for male versus female? And he was just sort of taken aside by that, which you should never be. Because like, if you've got a group of people and you're looking at a set of data on these people with information they provided, of course, you're going to divide it. You're going to look at male versus female. That's one of the, you'd always look at that. So the idea that he wasn't prepared for it and didn't have an answer, he just would give this, he gave this vague response. And then, well, I got to go back to the, the, uh, I've got to go back to the laboratory to get that computer file and I'll let you know. And so this guy went to Dr. Staples' best friend, who was another professor, and he said, he, he is interesting, the way he set it up to Staples' friend was, what would you do if you were in the position of, of a colleague, like somebody that you trusted and is your friend and you found out that they were fabricating results and the, the friend said, we'd hang them. We can't do that. You have to have wow. these. And then the guy, you know, he let him say it and say it and say it. And then he said, 
okay, well, this is really difficult that I've got to share with you. This is exactly what Dr. Staple is doing, and I've got the proof. And so that was how it all started falling apart. But I think it'd be a wow. great movie. Yeah, no kidding. Oof. Yeah, that makes my blood boil. Because you think about just our, in the grand scheme of things, how silly, like, not silly, but how small each one of our dissertations are, or each little piece of research, even if it does, especially if it has a null result, but the giant web in which it is a piece of is so especially, important. Yeah, especially structure. as AI is getting better at data, data mining and pulling information, it's only as good as, you know, garbage in is garbage out. Well, you got to right. have the correct data. So this is, you know, all all of those studies, all of those publishings, everyone that was, you know, connected to him is now in question. So it's just that's awful. All right, and we'll see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye bye. We'll see you bye. next time.